This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, our guest today is Vishal Sikka, uh, CEO of uh, uh, Infosys. Uh, Vishal, thank you very much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Good to be here, Michael. So you became the CEO of Infosys in June 2014. Uh, in the two and a half years uh, since then, how have the challenges that companies are trying to solve through technology changed, or are they pretty much the same that they were back then? They have become more intense, more accelerated, uh, faster, uh, more severe. Uh, with every passing day, um, the uh, rate of change uh, becomes faster. The impact of Moore's law um, becomes, um, and by Moore's law, I mean Moore's laws, not only uh, the famous Moore's law, but all the variations of it in all different parts of the, in the industry, in the technology industry. Um, so I think that uh, the advance of automation, the advance of digitization across the world uh, have all become more severe, more intense. The need for computing and computing awareness has become more intense uh, everywhere in the two and a half years. What's driving that intensity? The, uh, uh, I think that the divide between people who understand, who truly understand the impact of the digitizing world um, and those who don't uh, is just becoming bigger. If you just look in the last two and a half years since I started here at Infosys, the uh, top five technology, top five companies in the world by market cap now are technology companies. You know, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook, uh, which is quite staggering. This was not the case two and a half years ago. And uh, if you look at uh, a little bit longer term than that, look back over the last 10 years, uh, the iPhone was barely out 10 years ago. And uh, uh, Barack Obama was not president yet. And uh, Uber wasn't around, Tesla wasn't around. The, um, uh, the Fortune 500 uh, that was there at that time, something like 35 or 36% of those companies are not in the Fortune 500 anymore. So this is to me a staggering uh, lack of understanding what technology is all about. I mean, we are all, we, the people who make the technology companies are no different than us. You know, Steve Jobs used to say that the important thing in life is to remember that everything around us was built by people who are no different, no superior to us. And, and it's not as though there is some magic in technology. So I just find it incredible. All these companies that, are, that lost their Fortune 500 status, they all had huge budgets with the large consulting companies and they all had innovation departments. And so what happened? And to me, and the, by the way, the rate at which the Fortune 500 companies are vanishing uh, is also getting faster. Mm. Um, if you look back 50 years ago, the New York Times was in the Fortune 500 and, mm. and so forth. So I think that it is a, my wife runs our foundation here in the US and uh, she, for one of her, um, one of her initiatives, she prepared a speech and she found this amazing statistic that um, if computing is the new literacy, uh, programming a computer or being able to work with a computer. And if you, if you relate that conceptually, although they are vastly different, but if you relate that to reading and writing, the literacy rate uh, on the planet in the dark ages was around 6%, uh, when the dark ages were transitioning to the middle ages. And today, 
about half a percent of the world can read and write with a computer. Mm -hmm. So the computer literacy today is, is less than the actual literacy in the dark ages. So when Alan Kay says that, you know, the computer revolution hasn't begun yet, right. I think this is, it is, we are advancing into a world that is going to be uh, completely uh, defined by software, by digital, and we are not, we don't have a society that is literate in these technologies. You're quite right. And since you mentioned, you know, uh, digital transformation uh, and automation, uh, I would say those, you know, buzzwords along with artificial intelligence and machine learning, etc. Uh, you hear about that a lot these days. Almost every technology and non-technology company mm. is talking about it. Uh, companies like IBM uh, with Watson and right. Google with Brain, their Brain Group, uh, are, are, are and Microsoft. Many, many other, mm. most other companies are very active in this field. Uh, how do you see Infosys differentiating yourself in this world to to set apart of value proposition that's unique? So I find the, um, the AI um, phenomenon, I mean, I, I studied AI. Um, Marvin Minsky, who was uh, one of the fathers of AI, wrote my recommendation letter for my admission to Stanford. And uh, um, John McCarthy was at Stanford. He was the known as the father of AI, the other father. Mm -hmm. He actually coined the term artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And John was the one of my teachers and the head of my qualifying exam committee. Um, so I sort of grew up in AI, and then uh, back then it was the AI winter. People did not, you know, really want to be associated with AI. When I look back over these last uh, 25 years that I have been uh, working on it, and and I even though my PhD is in uh, one part of AI called theorem proving, logical reasoning, and so on, uh, I also worked in neural networks and machine learning. I did a very, in a memorable summer at Intel, in the Intel AI lab, Gene Myron used to run the Intel AI lab and my brother used to work there. And I spent a memorable summer working on neural networks for the Intel manufacturing process. Um, so I find this entire thing you know, somewhat surreal. Um, and what has happened in the last 20 years is that there has been a tremendous advance in computing. Uh, so back when I worked on the neural networks at, at Intel, uh, as a student, um, computers were probably a million times or more, more than a million times worse in price performance than they are today. Um, so that is one vast change that has happened. Uh, today's computers are unimaginably more powerful than computers back then. Um, the advances in, there have been some conceptual advances in techniques in AI. Uh, deep learning has become very popular in the last few years because of uh, the success of uh, a few techniques, the CNNs is what they are called, and reinforcement learning and so forth. But they are not such significant advances conceptually. Um, the real advance is in computing and the availability of massive amounts of data. I mean, if you look at YouTube or Instagram, there is a massive amount of data, and the computers are ridiculously more powerful. And so some of these techniques, in fact, deep learning itself, the fact that you have these many-layered neural networks uh, gives us, uh, that, that is possible because of the huge power of computers. Um, so um, that is creating applications uh, in a vast number of areas across industries. So, so far, the work in AI 
is largely focused in the consumer um, world and in um, uh, some areas like, like robotics and autonomous driving and, and so forth. The enterprise world is wide open, uh, rich with applications and so forth. So when we look at AI, uh, I, I would say there are three important aspects we have to think about. Uh, one is that there have been breathtaking applications. You know, recently one of the Carnegie Mellon uh, poker AI programs beat the four best poker players in the world, and uh, we had the AlphaGo and, and all of these things. So there have been some breathtaking applications. Um, and, and there is no doubt that as a result of AI advances, um, many of the jobs that we have today are going to go away. There is absolutely no doubt about that. A lot of those jobs are in my part of the world, in my industry, mm -hmm. in the IT services world. Um, a lot of also the non, the jobs that we would not normally think of, like, like, in, like doctors, lawyers, mm -hmm. legal researchers, uh, those jobs, many parts of these, mechanizable parts of these jobs will, will go to AI. Uh, so this, this is one point. The second point is we are still very early in the development of AI. The, the deeper AI, the society of mind that Marvin Minsky talked about, uh, we are still not close to, uh, to that. Probably in our lifetimes, we will not see a truly general AI, despite the hype, you know. I don't think that this is going to happen on a longer term horizon. Um, and the third point is that uh, we tend to get scared uh, and mystify technologies like AI, but the reality is that people are building AI. And you know, so there is no reason why everybody cannot learn to build AI systems. So we have to teach people AI. This is not dropping from the skies and into our hands. People are writing code that is intelligent code. For every truck driver who would lose their job to a truck driving system, there is a person writing the truck driving system. Mm -hmm. And so that potential, that human potential to build AI is still in front of us. So we at Infosys uh, see the same duality play out. On the one hand, if we sit still, there is absolutely no doubt that our jobs um, are going to be wiped out by AI. 60, 70% over the next 10 years, um, maybe less than 10 years of the jobs that we do today are going to be replaced by AI, unless we continue to evolve ourselves, and unless we continue to develop better technology and master automation. So I've been working on furiously on ways to teach uh, machine learning and AI techniques. I did a class myself. Uh, um, I prepared it uh, for, our, for our kids and uh, um, we have a great university in Mysore, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this campus, mm -hmm. uh, this one and, and this one, this, uh, there it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, we teach AI here at a, huge, at a huge level and we want to bring AI in these two dimensions. One is to help improve our productivity in our existing services. See, if you look at the evolution of Infosys uh, over the last 20 years, we started with, uh, in 35 years ago, with uh, application development and maintenance, which is to this day a very human, cognitive uh, job. But the dramatic growth that happened in the IT industry in the last 20 years happened in areas which are more mechanical than that, uh, like infrastructure management or BPO, uh, software verification. The tons of jobs that got created in these areas um, are all amenable to automation. And so, uh, depending on the nature of your business mix, 
um, huge parts of your business are prone to automation. It's already happening. We have, in the first nine months of this financial year, we have uh, saved 8,000 people's equivalent work using automation. Um, and so there is that carving out, eating up of the existing mechanizable work using AI. That's a big part of it. The other big part of it is the new applications of AI. So earlier today, our, our folks here uh, were showing me a remarkable application that they have built for one of the big train companies, mm -hmm. railroad companies, where they read the contract documents into our AI platform. Mm -hmm. And then they automate the process of complying to these contracts, mm -hmm. which is a huge application. It's a very mm -hmm. important application. So, you know, in HR, uh, jury duty and vacation and strikes and overtime and all of these kinds of things that in unionized workforces you have to com comply to. Uh, how do you ensure that you are continually compliant to that? This is a beautiful application of AI. Um, similarly, forecasting uh, profits or revenue, understanding customer behavior down to the level of an individual customer, things of this nature. So there are some really great um, so that's what we are doing is um, using AI to improve our productivity, eat up our existing services, and release people's you know, f imagination to be creative and innovative, and at the same time building new kinds of applications. In your mind, which is the, of all the different things you talked about, especially the, the kind of work that Infosys is doing in these areas, which is the most striking example you can think of of how AI has made someone that Infosys is working with more innovative? Um, we have, uh, there is a uh, CP, very large uh, uh, apparel uh, retail footwear company. Um, we have uh, uh, totally helped them dramatically accelerate their product innovation process. Mm -hmm. So uh, generally what happens when you make a shoe or a, uh, a piece of apparel is a designer comes up with an idea and then you start to make that, and then you test it, and you see that this is something that, that will work, so now you have to make this en masse. And then determining the cost of the ingredients and where to source them from, this is a very, very complex problem. Understanding the sentiments and then correlating that sentiment to demand, and then understanding the cost associated with that. Bill of materials for these kinds of products tend to be very complex, and then you have to source them to make it for millions of consumers and so forth. So generally, the processes around that are very surprisingly very weak. And so with AI, we can dramatically amplify people's ability to, to understand those costs and forecast those costs and then to, to dramatically accelerate. So we can bring down the time it takes to bring a new product to life from six months to like two weeks. Um, so this is one amazing example. Another one is in the relatively mundane area of financial closing. Um, for a huge company in the CPG world, we lowered the time it takes to close monthly close of books um, from something like 14 hours, something like 11 days to 14 hours. And uh, uh, that is a, their CFO is a huge fan of, uh, <laughs> of, of this and... Um, Not surprised. <laughs> yeah. So there are applications like that. You know, I had, uh, there is one very large insurance company that is our client and uh, they send out policy documents to their policyholders. There is an, a team of a thousand people, including about 100, 150 people from Infosys, mm -hmm. that goes through these documents and extracts out um, 30 or 40 fields from these documents manually. 
And uh, within two days of work on our AI platform, we were able to completely automate this. This is one of the most um, shocking examples of the power of automation that literally in 48 hours, uh, with the work of one of our engineers, we were able to essentially eliminate the work that was uh, being done by a thousand people in a shared service center. So let me bring you back to the question of jobs, since this seems very relevant to what you just said. If so many jobs are going to be eliminated, first, what should be done about that at the social level? And secondly, are there jobs that computers can't do that can now be done by people uh, as a result of this? Of course. Um, so, so, so this how is, do you uh, think about these things? The technology has been doing this for a long time. Um, if you look at agriculture, if you look at industrial automation, this has happened. Um, we now get more scared of AI because of the white-collar nature of it and, and so forth. But uh, um, the, the reality is that AI is an, an, another one of these technologies in this long list, the long pantheon of technologies that have amplified human ability. See, um, when we think about jobs, our brains are wired by, by nature to think about things in terms of the past. Our vocabulary, our metrics, our concepts are all based on what we have seen in the past. So we are inevitably look backwards when we think about, oh my God, all these jobs will go away. What we don't realize is that there are also new kinds of jobs that are being created, which, which we had no idea would exist. Um, and, uh, and so uh, AI is another one of these. People are writing AI. All kinds of AI systems have to be written, and uh, amazing applications have to be built. And there will be enough, if we have enough trained people. I mean, right now there are 18 million open IT jobs in the world. Um, so. And then we don't have enough people. And part of the reason this H-1 visa uh, debate exists mm -hmm. is it's not so much that you bring in people because they are cheaper than others. This is not true. Um, it may be true in pockets, but as a whole it is not true. It is simply that there are not enough skills. Um, and people with the skills are not there. And so I think that fundamentally the answer is education. Now everybody says, oh yeah, of course, you know, everybody talks about education. But the reality is that in order to do something, we have to learn to do that thing. And uh, so we have to teach people. And we have to teach people lifelong learning. In the course of a career, many time, many job changes will happen. And we have to train people. And in particular, I, I am a co-chair uh, together with Missy Cummings uh, of this World Economic Forum's Council on AI and Robotics. And this is one of the big issues. The, uh, that how do you retrain people, especially the older people who are affected by this and who have families and, and so on. And this is, but the answer is, in, in the end, the answer comes down to training, reskilling, education, um, and enabling people to do that. Now, it could be that because of the pace of change, there is a, we have to help people tide over, um, you know, uh, the time that it takes them to reskill themselves and there is a lot of thinking around that uh, universal basic income and other forms of social fabrics to help people and, and so forth. Uh, so broadly speaking, that is my sense, is that there is plenty of opportunity to build AI systems and, and so on. To your other question about the human frontier, uh, I think that, again, uh, we tend to overlook the fact that all these technologies end up amplifying ourselves. Uh, they end up improving our abilities. And, and so um, 
there is no shortage. When I started at Stanford, I had a um, remarkable experience. I, I went to see my PhD advisor and I asked him, what do you want me to work on? And he said, I have no idea. And, uh, and I was shocked by that. I said, no, you are supposed to have a, there is supposed to be this list of problems and you are supposed to tell me one of these and I work on this. He says, no, you find your own problem then we will judge if this problem is good enough or not, and then we then you solve that problem, and then we judge if the solution is good enough. This is how it works. If this is not what you had in mind, then this is not the right place for you. And so that really put me into a tailspin. You know, I, I went to school in Syracuse, but I had grown up in India. And um, uh, so in all your life, you learn to follow orders, to, you know, uh, follow authority and do what you are told. and. Uh, and that lesson really informs and guides a lot of what I do at Infosys in terms of the transforming a culture of doing what we are told and so on. So at that time, um, I really started thinking about finding my own problem. And uh, John McCarthy, who I mentioned earlier, um, he did a seminar which changed my life. Um, in, in that seminar, he said that articulating a problem is half the solution. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that there is such a thing as problem finding. Mm -hmm. um, and that, and I, I talked to another professor, Bob Floyd, who was also a Turing Award winner. He used, he, that's the Floyd of Floyd's algorithm, you know, for network logistics and, and so forth. And I told him that McCarthy said this, and he said, oh, that's not it. I frame a problem, then I solve it. Then I go back to see if I can reframe that and I resolve it, and until I can no longer improve the solution, that's when I know that I have found a beautiful solution. Yeah, and so, you know, um, and in those days, uh, there was the Center for Design Research at Stanford that was starting to think about this problem finding, design thinking, uh, problem synthesis kinds of things. And so I, I sort of grew up uh, opening my eyes to this idea that there is problem solving, but there is also problem finding. And that was a very big lesson for me. Um, and so about, um, uh, you know, Hasso, my former boss at SAP, Hasso Plattner, uh, invested in the, he gave a big grant to the design school, which is the Hasso Plattner Institute for Design. And the design thinking is a very, very powerful idea around problem finding. So my sense is that uh, within our lifetimes, we will be able to build AI systems that are able to solve a problem that can be articulated, that can be mechanically defined. But problem finding is still a human frontier. Uh, to be able to look into a room and see what is not here, you know, uh, what is missing, what if we were to bring here would, would be desirable and feasible and viable that the world needs. All innovation is like that. Um, and when I was talking about the Fortune 500 disappearing earlier, it is a very profound failure of problem finding, of not being able to see what is the right problem for our future, um, and to be able to then, of course, solve it, which is going to be easier and easier with AI. So you, you, you've talked at length about AI and what's happening in the world of technology. Uh, I wonder if we could take a step back again to two and a half years ago and when you were sort of thinking about the strategy for Infosys. Uh, what was your assessment at that time of Infosys's strengths and weaknesses as, a, as an organization dealing with this world of technology and challenges? And 
how does the idea of zero distance fit into that strategy? So it is a, it's very uh, fundamentally linked to what I have talked about. And in that sense, it has been a uh, homecoming in more ways than one. Um, the, uh, when I started, uh, there was, of course, the big force of automation and technology and digitization and AI and so on. Uh, and you could see that. There were also some local issues uh, within Infosys. Um, the company was not doing so well, and uh, um, there was a lot of attrition and a sense of anxiety in the workforce. Uh, and the founders, the iconic founders, uh, uh, left the, at the time when I started. And, um, and so there was a, a tremendous sense of, of, of anxiety in the company, um, which was very kind of local. Um, but the other big force uh, was the nature of the, of the IT services industry and the nature of Infosys in face of the technological disruption. And uh, when I started, uh, I started, I was announced in the middle of June 2014 and I started on the 1st of August. Uh, I, I saw all of this and shortly thereafter there was this uh, survey that uh, we do an annual survey of our clients and their satisfaction and so forth. And I saw that and uh, it was very revealing. It was actually very depressing, incredibly depressing. I, uh, the, you know, uh, the scores, I, I actually got the entire printout of every single client's actual raw feedback and I read it over a period of a month. I used to sit in flights and, and read that. And um, uh, it was very depressing. The client after client after client would give us high scores on quality, on uh, professionalism, on delivery excellence. But every one of them would give us the lowest scores on strategic relevance, on being proactive, on being innovative. I'm thinking, we, don't, we are not innovative. We have 150,000 software engineers. Um, and that was really shocking. And, you know, I, I, um, uh, while I was reading this, I met with a client, a chief operating officer of a huge mining company who was a friend of mine. And he asked me, how are you doing? What have you found? And I told him that, look, I'm going through this survey and it's really depressing. And is this what you have found? He said, this is exactly what I have been telling you, your, your guys, that you don't tell us proactively what we could be doing better. You do a great job of doing what you are told, but not of coming up with ideas. And then we were walking around and in one of these floors where we run, ran their finance process, there was this huge chart that one of our team members had built of their finance uh, R2R process. And at the end of that, he had written that 60% of your invoices are touch-free and 40% require manual intervention. So, so my friend, very innocently asked this guy, so who is the best in the industry that you guys work with? And this guy jumped up and he said, oh, it is this other company. It's not exactly in your space, but it is similar. They are at 88%. Mm. And so my friend said, when were you going to tell me this? And he looked at me and said, see, they, you do what you are told, but you're not proactive. Right. And to me, that became the primary driver. I actually, when I saw these, uh, the situation in the company, I threw out the strategy paper that I was writing. And I said, look, we have to, we have to reignite this, the mindset. Mr. Murthy always told me that in his early days, that was his thing. He wanted to do software projects that nobody else could. And, and, 
Um, and so Zero Distance was born out of that idea. Um, the, there are about 9,500 main projects going on in the company. And I basically inspired every project to do something innovative. Can you, for those who are not familiar with it, can you explain what, what Zero Distance actually means? And how do you tell whether it's working? So the idea is that um, um, we don't just do what we are told, but in every single project, no matter what it is, no matter how mundane, no matter what area it is in, you do something innovative. You find some problem and you, so, you solve that problem. You, you go beyond the charter of the, of, the, of the project and do something innovative to delight the client and do something that they did not expect, something bigger than what you were thinking about. So for example? For, for example, you are, you are working on, on managing a, um, a loan process and you realize that because of this, that, or the other innovation, this process can be simplified dramatically. Or, and so you go and you tell the client that, look, hey, you know, if I did this, that, or the other, I can, I just saw this project last week when I was in India. Uh, one of the teams showed me this. Uh, they were doing this for a huge bank here in the United States that was spun up, was shrunk by two weeks, just by this team of 25 people. And it is shocking, you know, you <laughs> take out two weeks out of a process just by applying your mind uh, from within. And there are 9,000 examples like this. Uh, so the, the idea of zero distance itself is that uh, you focus on the teams that are in constant contact with the outside world. Those are the teams that can execute the transformation because they are the ones living in the, uh, in the world outside. They are not inward looking. You know, people always ask me, why do large organizations uh, stop being innovative and the reality and then you know you pay consultants tons of money and then they come and tell you that the middle management is broken and it's always the middle management that is broken but the reality is it has it's not the middle management it is the fact that in a in a large organization there are a whole bunch of people who have never seen the outside world they have never sold anything they have never built anything they have never talked to an end user to see what really goes on with them and so you have to always flatten the organization as much as possible so that the maximum amount of, of, of the people are in outside contact, in, at least in one of these three dimensions. And in our case, that is the project teams and our, the heart, heartbeat of our company is our project. So we have uh, close to 10,000, 9,500 or so projects that are going on. And the amazing thing was that that thing just took off. Uh, we are approaching two years of zero distance. Uh, in March of 2015, I launched it. And it was uh, uh, shocking to see how rapidly uh, it was adopted. And um, uh, the project, project managers are, are young. They are about 31, 32 years old, and the teams are even younger. And so I think going down to that level and creating that, that idea, that spark, um, was key. Part of the enabler was the design thinking. So we have, uh, we just crossed 130,000 people mm. that we have trained on design thinking. Mm. Everyone who comes into Mysore is trained on it. Um, mm. And we have been going around to our DCs also here in the uh, on-site locations and teaching people design thinking. Not to turn them into designers, but to uh, create this spirit of problem finding, this spirit of, um, you know, of, of looking at the world and seeing what is not there, being of exercising our imagination. So the basic idea is to elevate from a cost-oriented service delivery culture towards an innovation culture at the grassroots. Mm -hmm. The bigger idea, of course, is that AI is coming and uh, 
uh, we have to automate everything that we do as much as possible, and we have to become innovative. We have to become problem finders. You know, people tell me now that. How do, you, how do you do that? Because when you have had a company that has, as you said before, where people are used to being doing what they are told, uh, how do you transform the culture of an organization from that to becoming innovators? Uh, so that they can act upon the strategy you described. There's an old saying that uh, strategy eats uh, culture, no, culture eats strategy for lunch. How, how how are you dealing with that problem at Infosys? It is tough. It is tough. It is very very tough. Um, everybody says it is tough, but when you do it in reality, when you exercise it, you realize that it is much more difficult than than it seems. The good news is that uh, a culture of learning uh, always helps. Um, we had that. Um, it comes from our founder, uh, Mr. Murthy. He talked. About, he used to talk about learnability, the the ability to learn, as one of the key hiring criterion. Um, the uh, good news is that the youngsters are really willing to. Uh, they are. They feel this sense of inspiration. Um, ironically, the. Uh, generally, the desire to change as you go up the organizational levels and as you go higher in age, it's it, there are some tremendous innovators, you know, who are m much older. Um, uh, Hasso used to say that uh, at 70 he was just getting started in innovation and uh, and so on. So it's not nothing to do with age, um, but it has to do with how set we become in our ways and so forth. And generally, I have found that the youngsters are much more open to uh, to embracing these ideas. And I think that every one of us has that creative spark in us. Somehow our education, our schooling, sort of beats it out of us by the time we are nine or 10 years old. And we forget asking questions. And every once in a while looking stupid and asking some really silly question. Uh, but I believe, you know, people ask me why this one-day design uh, exercise. We, on, on October 31 of 2014, less than 100 days after I started, I had started this design training. I, three of the faculty from the Stanford D School went down to Mysore to create the training curriculum for design thinking. And it's a day-long experience where all these kids go through and they make something and they understand what problem finding and synthesis is all about and so on. It serves to ignite a spark in their head about, you know, uh, hey, why don't I, uh, why don't I do this or why don't I, I do that? One of the teams had once did this exercise where they said that um, this technician has to make two rounds. Once they goes to the place where there is a problem to find what the problem is and then he comes back, takes the stuff and goes to solve it. And what if we forecasted the problem so then he just makes one trip? Mm -hmm. This was one of these ideas and there have been you know, thousands and thousands of these ideas. And it's really amazing how it got adopted. So the change in culture, one part of it was the enabling through education, enabling through tooling, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so forth. But that doesn't, you know, get you to um, get inspired. To do that, you have to constantly demonstrate that this is something serious, this is something rewarding. Uh, you know, uh, people don't find compensation as important as recognition. Mm. And so you have to recognize people. Mm. Um, I have done, in the two years since I started Zero Distance, uh, 
probably 35 zero distance meetings mm -hmm. with various teams around the world. I do these every time I go to India, I do a zero distance meeting and sometimes 20,000 people show up in these meetings. Mm -hmm. and, and they see, you know, Ravi, our head of delivery and, and I and uh, many of our senior leaders, we show up there whenever we are around. I, I always do it. Whenever the leadership team is with me, they come with me. And, uh, and for the people, it is very important to see that, look, he is actually looking at five, six actual projects out of 10,000 projects. Mm -hmm. And that matters a lot. Um, and uh, so th things of this nature uh, really helped to, uh, we did a very interesting exercise mm -hmm. to identify the most passionate people inside the company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How did you do that? Well, there is unfortunately no metric for passion. There, there is, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you know it when you see it. And so we, um, uh, we actually found 20 or so people that we all agreed were supremely passionate. Um, and we asked them to find, tell us who the other passionate people were, and we built up a tree like that. <laughs> so I, I believe we have a limited amount of time left, so I wonder if I could wrap up with a couple, few questions on leadership. Yeah. Um, uh, and and the, given what you were talking about, culture, uh, before you took over as the CEO of Infosys, you were part of the leadership team at SAP. Uh, what was the difference between being a leader at SAP and being a leader at Infosys? What carries over and what's different? I think the people instincts carry over. They are the same, the, the culture, the principles. The, um, generally, you know, Engelbart used to talk about the A, B, and C tasks of an organization. There is the things that we do. Those are different from company to company. Then there is the how we do the things that we do, the processes and the uh, mindset and the systems. Those are generally similar. They are still, they can vary depending on what industry you are in and so forth, but there is more similarity there. And then there is the C task, which is why you do the things that you do, the, the, the purpose, the culture, the reason. And you have to ensure that generally people lose sight as they go through a change, they lose sight of their C tasks and that, that why, and you have to understand that. The, of course, SAP was uh, older than Infosys is. Our average age is 27. Back when I was at SAP, I think it was something like 43 or 42, something like that. Um, and uh, very different as a product company. Uh, tens of thousands of customers. Here we have, we are a $10 billion company with 1,000 customers. 250 of these produce 87% of our revenue. So it's a vastly different uh, customer engagement kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the culture mm -hmm. uh, in, being in India and um, at SAP, it was, uh, of course, the German roots, but much more international, much more global. Here it is uh, still a deeply, even though we have 22,000 people here in the US, it's very much an India-centric company and, uh, uh, and, and so forth. So, so many, many differences, but some principles, some of the ideas uh, transcend the differences. So if you were to think back about your, your, your leadership journey, what would you say is the biggest leadership challenge that you have faced? How did you deal with it? And what did you learn from it? The biggest leadership challenge that I have faced? Uh, there have been many, uh, you know, the transformation of a company, when we were building HANA, when I was at SAP, uh, 
And uh, uh, the thing about HANA was that the core team of HANA was in Waldorf. Uh, very entrepreneurial, very innovative, like a family atmosphere. Um, one of my memorable pictures from the HANA days was uh, uh, around Christmas time, there was this one building, Bach building, the building three of SAP, and uh, every wing around seven o'clock at night on a Friday night, every single wing of the building was dark, except one wing, which was every single light on that wing was on, and you could tell which one was the HANA team. Mm -hmm. And that was, I was so proud of that, you know, that was, uh, uh, the, the, the culture. And it was in the heart of the root of the company. Um, and so that kind of a transformation from within is very difficult. It can be done. It can be done, which is what we are endeavoring to do here with Zero Distance and with MANA, with the AI platform and, and, and so on. Um, so I think the biggest, there are a lot of transient challenges that come and go. Um, Ensuring that we transition ourselves to a new generation without losing our values, without losing our ethos. People debate culture and, and values and so forth, and you know, the, do the values change? And I had a very interesting debate recently with a very good friend of mine who is a CEO of a large company here in the US. And uh, he said that Vishal values change all the time, ethics don't change. Mm -hmm. And that was a very interesting perspective on, on values and, and you know, um, the, so, so that transformation is a, uh, is a very big challenge. Uh, people call it cultural transformation and, and so forth. Getting people... I, I thought you would, you would say you know, bridging the, old, the culture of the old emphasis with the new emphasis. Is that accurate? Um, I, I think that there is no old or new. The, the moment I deeply believe uh, having gone through many of these transformational experiences, I deeply believe that saying that there is an innovation department ensures that you don't innovate anywhere else. Saying that there is a new department ensures that everyone else thinks that they are old. Yeah. This we cannot do. There, is a, uh, there are businesses that we never did before as a company that we get into, but there is always new things happening in every business. There, it has to. If you look at nature, you know, nature constantly renews itself. We are about to enter springtime. I was looking at some cherry blossoms around my house. And um, nature is constantly renewing itself. And yet, the fruits that fall off the trees, they grow into their own trees. These are new things. Um, so I think we have to have a culture. That is one of the biggest lessons that I have learned, is that we cannot differentiate. Everyone in the, uh, in the company, everyone in the organization, in all corners of the company, has to innovate. One of the most amazing examples of innovation at Infosys has come from our finance team. Mm. Um, one of our core processes, the OTR process, the order to cash equivalent process in our company, we have managed to um, cut it down by 50%. We, we shrunk it down to 50% without compromise in, mm. in any way, shape, or form. Mm. Uh, that was a great example of a process transformation from within. So it's not like, you know, you say, oh, you know, I'm a finance team or I'm an HR team, what innovation do you want me to do? Mm -hmm. This innovation that I talked about in identifying the most passionate people, identifying the highest performers, we value the highest performers who are on the front lines more than basically anybody else in the company. So you have to create a culture um, which is pervasively innovative um, and not create silos of, of innovation. Let me ask, end with one last question. Several years ago, I think it was about 11 years ago, I had the 
good fortune to interview uh, Henning Kagerman, yeah. uh, who, who I think you have described as the best boss you ever had. Yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> and the question towards the end of the conversation was, what do you do to relax? And his answer just blew me away. He said he likes to listen to rock music. <laughs> he, he is a big fan of Deep Purple. <laughs> and, and, and he even took all his customers to a Deep Purple concert, which yeah. I, would, I would never have imagined. This yeah. is Henning, Henning is a answers. real metalhead uh, so, so to let this me, day. <laughs> so, so let me ask you the same question. What do you do to relax? Oh, boy. Uh, sleep would be a good idea <laughs> these days. I... Um, no, I live a very frantic lifestyle. Uh, my home is here uh, near where we are sitting in California, but I, the company's headquarters in India, so I'm constantly on the road. Last year I made uh, 99 plus 17 flights. People talk about my you know, traveling in private jets. The, I looked at that and uh, January 1 to December 31, I made 99 commercial trips on uh, account amounting to about 800 hours. 780 hours, something like that, and 17 private flights of 39 hours. Uh, but, but that is, if you think about this total, it is an insane amount of travel. And uh, so sleep, um, I, just to calm myself down, to uh, reconnect, I, um, every once in a while I will take a day and, and go to a temple, uh, a Buddhist temple, and just relax and be peaceful. Um, I love to surf, but I haven't, I, thankfully last year at spring break, I, my wife managed to uh, get a few days and take us all to Hawaii and I managed to surf after a long time. Um, I, I love to surf, it's, it's one of the most amazing, I'm very unfit now, but I can still manage to stand up on a, you know, one of those big 11 foot boards <laughs> and uh, like a boat. Uh, yeah, but uh, now you got me thinking about surfing. <laughs> Vishal, thank you so much for talking with Knowledge at Wharton. Absolutely. Great pleasure, Mukul. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.